everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's session, the 52nd session, believe it or not, in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth, we approach the end of the Two Towers. We meet and confront and challenge one of the most loathsome characters in the entire book, and we talk about stories with Samwise Gamgee, because I can't imagine a better way of passing an evening, to be perfectly honest. Tonight's chapters 8 and 9 of Book 4 of The Two Towers, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol and Shelob's Lair, these are going to be pretty demanding chapters. There's a lot of material to cover, and Tolkien is more than usually going to break the frame of his own narrative, or, well, potentially not break the frame of his own narrative. We'll talk about that a little more as we get to the actual specific references or allusions to the material contained within the Silmarillion, which had not yet, of course, been published. More on that as we move forward. Let's pick up from the Fallen King at the end of the last chapter and push ever onward toward the Morgul Vale with Chapter 8, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol, and get right to our first slide. Gollum was tugging at Frodo's cloak and hissing with fear and impatience. We must go, he said. We mustn't stand here. Make haste! Reluctantly, Frodo turned his back on the west and followed as his guide led him out into the darkness of the east. They left the ring of trees and crept along the road toward the mountains. This road, too, ran straight for a while, but soon it began to bend away southwards until it came right under the great shoulder of rock that they had seen from the distance. Black and forbidding, it loomed above them, darker than the dark sky behind. Crawling under its shadow, the road went on and rounding it sprang east again and began to climb steeply. Frodo and Sam were plodding along with heavy hearts, no longer able to care greatly about their peril. Frodo's head was bowed, his burden was dragging him down again. As soon as the great crossroads had been passed, the weight of it, almost forgotten in Ithilien, had begun to grow once more. Now, feeling the way become steep before his feet, he looked wearily up, and then he saw it, even as Gollum had said that he would, the city of the Ringwraiths. He cowered against the stony bank. A long, tilted valley, a deep gulf of shadow ran back far into the mountains. Upon the further side, some way within the valley's arms, high on a rocky seat above the black knees of the Ethelduath, stood the walls and towers of Minas Morgul. All was dark about it, earth and sky, but it was lit with light. Not the imprisoned moonlight wailing through the marble halls of Minas Ithil long ago, tower of the moon, fair and radiant in the hollow of the hills, paler indeed than the moon ailing in some slow eclipse was the light of it now, wavering and blowing like a noisome exhalation of decay, a corpse light, a light that illuminated nothing. In the walls and tower windows showed like countless black holes looking inward into emptiness, but the topmost course of the tower revolved slowly, first one way and then another, a huge ghostly head leering into the night. For a moment the three companions stood there, shrinking, staring up with unwilling eyes. Gollum was the first to recover. Again he pulled at their cloaks urgently, but he spoke no word. Almost he dragged them forward. Every step was reluctant, and time seemed to slow its pace, so that between the raising of a foot and the setting of it down, minutes of loathing passed. The grim spectre here of Minas Morgul, the Tower of Dark Sorcery, this corrupted tower formerly of Gondor, the eastern border, this, this light in the darkness uh, kindled by the men of Gondor so very long ago, now fallen into darkness for a thousand years, as we discussed last time, as we were talking about uh, Faramir's account of the history of Minas Ithil. Minas Morgul has stood the darkest place upon the border of Mordor, not as guarded, perhaps, as Moranon, but then it doesn't need to be. Because when Moranon has tens of thousands of orc troops guarding the, the iron battlements above the Black Gate itself, Minas Morgul has, well, 
What does Minas Morgul have? It has the ringwraiths, yes. This is where the Nazgul come from. This is where the Nazgul reside between long bouts of evil in the world of men and elves and hobbits and dwarves. But there is something else here. This, this noisome light, this noisome exhalation as we get, a noisome exhalation of decay, a corpse light, a light that illuminated nothing. This pale, sickly glow, not bright in the darkness, but a light that serves only to exaggerate the darkness, to exacerbate the darkness. Here is Minas Morgul, and we're approaching, of course, from the crossroads. Now we have left behind Athelion, as we discussed last time. As Faramir said, no man of his generation has ventured east of the road. The road, specifically the crossroads here, is the border between even the contested lands of Athelion and Osgiliath and Mordor proper. For the first time in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo has now set foot upon the territory of the enemy. Even the Efelduath, even the Blasted Lands, even the, the plains below, the plains of Dagorlad before Moranon, these are under the shadow, yes, but not completely dominated by darkness. Minas Morgul is different. Um, Seastar saying in the chat here, Tolkien succeeded in making the absolute dead industrial-esque wasteland beyond the dead marshes repulsive and scary. For me, he failed at that in Minas Morgul. It's fascinating and I actually want to hear more of it. That's really interesting. Um, for me, this is every bit as effective. It's not obviously dead the way that the dead marshes are dead or even the way that the plains of Dagorlad are dead. You know, it is not barren. It isn't... It isn't even replete with that unwholesome life that we saw back in the Dead Marshes. This is something very different. There is a, a, a malice here, an active presence here, which is unlike those that we've seen before. This is, as I say, the heart, or at least approaching the heart of the enemy, and certainly the heart of one of the enemy's most faithful servants. So let's move onward to uh, the coming of the great storm, I suppose, the breaking of the storm. Now, we've had this framed a little bit. You know, Faramir is talking about the, the dream of peace of Athelion. We, we've talked about the coming storm. We've talked last time about the darkness now that has spread forth from Mordor. We are going to spend the rest of our time here pretty much in darkness. This darkness will only be vanquished much later in the return of the king at the Battle of Palinor Fields. That is going to be the moment at which the darkness is finally lifted, but the darkness has now come upon us. And the darkness is not an end unto itself. The darkness is an extension of Sauron's power in advance of, well, the host that rides forth. And Frodo is about to be tested with the ring. Um... Oh, this was actually not the slide that I wanted. This was the slide that I wanted. Excuse me. All that host was clad in sable, dark as the night. Against the wan walls and the luminous pavement of the road, Frodo could see them, small black figures in rank upon rank, marching swiftly and silently, passing outwards in an endless stream. Before them went a great cavalry of horsemen, moving like ordered shadows, and at their head was one greater than all the rest, a rider, all black, save that on his hooded head he had a helm like a crown that flickered with a perilous light. Now he was drawing near the bridge below, and Frodo's staring eyes followed him, unable to wink or to withdraw. Surely there was the Lord of the Nine Riders, returned to earth to lead his ghastly host to battle? Here, yes, here indeed was the haggard king whose cold hand had smitten down the ring-bearer with his deadly knife. The old wound throbbed with pain, and a great chill spread toward Frodo's heart. Even as these thoughts pierced him with dread and held him bound as with a spell, the rider halted suddenly, right before the entrance of the bridge, and behind him all the host stood still. There was a pause, a dead silence. Maybe it was the ring that called to the Wraith Lord, and for a moment he was troubled, sensing some other power within his valley. 
This way and that turned the dark head, helmed and crowned with fear, sweeping the shadows with its unseen eyes. Frodo waited, like a bird at the approach of a snake, unable to move. And as he waited, he felt more urgent than ever before the command that he should put on the ring. But great as the pressure was, he felt no inclination now to yield to it. He knew that the ring would only betray him, and that he had not, even if he put it on, the power to face the Morgul king. Not yet. There was no longer any answer to that command in his own will, dismayed by terror though it was, and he felt only the beating upon him of a great power from outside. It took his hand, and as Frodo watched with his mind, not willing it but in suspense, as if he looked on some old story far away, it moved the hand inch by inch toward the chain upon his neck. Then his own will stirred. Slowly it forced the hand back and set it to find another thing, a thing lying hidden near his breast. Cold and hard it seemed as his grip closed on it, the file of Galadriel, so long treasured and almost forgotten till that hour. As he touched it, for a while all thought of the ring was banished from his mind. He sighed and bent his head. At that moment the Wraith King turned and spurred his horse and rode across the bridge, and all his dark host followed him. Maybe the elven hoods defied his unseen eyes and the mind of his small enemy being strengthened and turned aside his thought, but he was in haste. Already the hour had struck, and at his great master's bidding he must march with war into the west. Soon he had passed like a shadow into shadow down the winding road, and behind him still the black ranks crossed the bridge. So great an army had never issued from that vale since the days of Isildur's might. No host so fell and strong in arms had yet assailed the fords of Anduin, and yet it was but one and not the greatest of the hosts that Mordor now set forth. A great deal to discuss. What is Sauron's plan here? This is the marching of Sauron's host into the West. This is the declaration of open war. While there have been skirmishes along the borders and in the contested lands, while orc raiding parties have crossed the Anduin into the lands of men, while the servants and spies of Sauron have crossed the civilized lands, some searching for the ring, some just sowing dissension and trouble, while he has manipulated Saruman into creating the army of the Urukai, and so on, and so on, and so on, while he has been engaged in this conflict, he has not yet sent forth his full might. But now... He has. This host, this immense host, no host so fell and strong in arms had yet assailed the fords of Anduin, and yet it was but one and not the greatest of the hosts that Mordor now sent forth. As terrible as this army is, it isn't the only one, and it isn't even the strongest. It is about to throw down now. It is about to get really hard for the men of Gondor, for all the good and peaceful races of Middle-earth. Things are about to go from bad to worse. What is Sauron's game plan at this point? Why is he sending forth his armies? Well, because now he knows that the ring exists. Now he knows that it is out there. And he believes that it will be used against him. He is marshalling his forces now. He is sending his forces forth in the name of conquest, he needs to recapture the ring before it is used against him because that is the only use for the ring which Sauron can conceive of. He cannot imagine that the ring will be destroyed. This goes all the way back to, uh, to the Council of Elrond. Gandalf says in the Council of Elrond when they're discussing the possibility of destroying the ring, let folly be our cloak, avail before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power, and so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter that any will refuse it, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. And Gandalf, it turns out, is completely right. 
Sauron, now knowing that the ring has been found, now knowing that it is moving once more through the world, is sending forth his army to challenge the ring on its own turf, to challenge the might of man. He is going to take Minas Tirith now, because now is the only chance he gets. If he waits, if he falters, if he hesitates, he believes that the ring will be used against him. And though that would be disastrous for Middle-earth, like a dark lord would rise to replace Sauron, it would be even worse for Sauron, in the short term, at least. Sauron could be destroyed by the use of the ring. His fell host could be destroyed by the use of the ring. But the ring is much closer to Mordor than Sauron believes it to be. In fact, the ring is currently in the possession of a tiny hobbit watching this host march out from Minas Morgul under the, the leadership, the, the commanding presence of the Witch King of Angmar, the leader of the Ringwraith, the Ringwraith who stabbed Frodo all the way back at Weathertop. This is the greatest test that Frodo will face up until the climax of the book. This is the moment that stresses his power over the ring, his power over himself, more than any other that he has faced thus far. As he waited, he felt more urgent than ever before the command he should put on the ring. So he recognizes, okay, he is feeling this. This is an external influence over him. This is the ring talking. We're not doing rationalization now. We're not trying to persuade him. Hey, you're still in the Shire and Gandalf said not to use it, but Bilbo used it many times and it's probably going to be fine. Or, hey, maybe you should just try it on and see what Tom Bombadil does. Like, maybe you should test it to make sure that it's really your ring, right? We're not getting the rationalization. The rationalization that has up until this point been an absolutely ubiquitous feature of interactions with the ring or the influence of the ring over any individual that comes into its presence. No, no rationalization now. Or is there? Because Frodo's response here is intriguingly ambiguous. He knew that the ring would only betray him and that he had not, even if he put it on, the power to face the Morgul king. Not yet. Even if he puts the ring on, he can't challenge the Morgul king. He can't challenge the witch king of Angmar here. Not yet. What is the ring's purpose then? Why is he trying to put it on? What are the forces currently warring within Frodo? Well, there's been some discussion over on the forum, and of course this is an ongoing discussion when you're talking about the Lord of the Rings and you're particularly speculating about the power and capability of the One Ring. What does the ring want? How does the ring manifest that want? What... What does the ring try to accomplish and how does it try to accomplish those things? We've talked before about exactly that rationalization, right? The ring wants to be used, so it tries to persuade you, hey, you should probably use me. But Frodo doesn't seem to be falling under that influence now, right? He's mindful of the fact, he's conscious of the fact that this influence is coming from outside, that, that he himself does not want to put on the ring. This is, this is an influence that is taking over his being and his body. And he knows that the ring will only betray him and that he had not, even if he put it on, the power to face the Morgul King, not yet. There was no longer any answer to that command in his own will, dismayed by terror though it was, and he felt only the beating upon him of a great power from outside. It took his hand, and as Frodo watched with his mind, not willing, not willing it, but in suspense, as if he looked on some old story from far away, it moved the hand inch by inch toward the chain upon his neck. What is making him reach for the ring now? Well, it's not the ring. The ring does not want to be worn right now or at least is not actively striving to be worn right now. There was no longer any answer to that command in his own will, dismayed by terror though it was. He felt only the beating upon him of a great power from outside. It took his hand. The great power from outside took his hand. This is a new development in our understanding of the ring. Why is Frodo tempted to put on the ring when he's confronted by the Nazgul all the way back in the Shire? 
Well, because there's something about the presence of the Nazgul that, seem, that seeks to expose the ring. This may not be the ring's desire. This may not be the ring urging Frodo to put it on, to wear it, though, again, the existence of rationalization back in the Shire suggests that that may, in fact, be the case. That is the one consistent thing that we've seen with interactions with regard to the ring throughout the entire book. This is something else. This is the presence of, of the greatest of the Nazgul, seeking, fearing, being mindful, aware of this other power in his valley, this place that is so utterly dominated by his spirit that it's, it, the valley itself is now corrupted. The, the Morgul veil is now, is now evil itself. The Ringwraith now is seeking the ring actively and, and testing for it. And then, of course, we get the transition. Frodo uh, manages to find the strength. Then his own will stirred. Again, something within Frodo stirs. Is it Frodo's own will and courage? Is it his fortitude? Is it an intervention from outside? Is it a catastrophic intervention? Is it the will of the ring? Well, any or all of those may be true. But in, in any case, his own will stirs. Slowly it forced the hand back and set it to find another thing, a thing lying hidden under his breast. And he grasps, of course, the file of Galadriel. At which point the influence of the ring disappears. The, the, the connection of the ring to the Morgul Vale disappears and the ring wraith moves on. And then we get this playful thing from the narrator here. It's, it's really rather adorable. Maybe the elven hoods defied his unseen eyes and the mind of his small enemy being strengthened had turned aside his thought, but he was in haste. Uh, maybe, maybe it was the cloaks. Maybe the only defense against the Witch King of Angmar is to have a really good elven cloak, like a really good cloak from Lothlorien that, that has the little clasp and fits you beautifully and wards off the chill. Like maybe that's all you need to fight the Nazgul. Maybe not, though. It is the strengthening, and the narration acknowledges here, that his own will was strengthened. Why was his will strengthened? Or by what force was his will strengthened? Well, we're going to see this happen again later in tonight's reading, or we're going to see something similar happen later in tonight's reading, arguably, at least. But it is also possible at this point that it is the ring. That the ring is fighting back against... Uh, against a being that has been so utterly corrupted by the presence of a ring that it now exists completely within the wraith world. The ring may want to stay with Frodo at this point, and we can be absolutely sure that if that is the case, nothing good is going to come. Let's look at Frodo's uh, conclusion here. Let me see. Got lots of questions popping up in the chat here. This is excellent. Um, yes, okay. <laughs> I think maybe we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll run through the questions right at the end of, of tonight's uh, session. Yes, good, good. Nikki says, also, that part of Frodo that holds onto good knew to reach for the file of Galadriel. What could be more powerful than defying the call of the Nazgul than that? Yes, right? The power of the file containing the light of Arendel, right? This is an enormously powerful artifact in the warding off of evil, as we'll see later. Not just the influence of the Nazgul, not just even the influence of the ring, but also, ultimately, Shelob too. But I'm concerned about Frodo's will, or I'm curious, I suppose, about Frodo's will. He has no strength left in him to contest the power that is beating upon him from outside. Some power takes over his body and moves his hand toward the ring. He is compelled to seize and presumably wear the ring and then be revealed so that he can be slain and the ring can be taken. Presumably that is how that is going to play out. That seems to be attributed to that external force, to the Nazgul, right? But something else strengthens Frodo's will. 
And I don't think that if it, if we are told that it strengthens Frodo, Frodo's will, that we can attribute it entirely to Frodo's will. It seems to be some other force. It could be the file itself. It could be the presence of Galadriel. It could be some post-hypnotic suggestion implanted by her back when we were in Lothlorien. It could just be the the divine wind of the West that is that is you know sowing goodness through the world. All of these things are possible. It could also possibly potentially be the ring because the ring now wants Frodo more than it wants Sauron. To the degree that the ring can be said to want anything, I suppose. Again, questions upon questions, ambiguities upon ambiguities. So the host passes and we get this slide. Frodo stirred and suddenly his heart went out to Faramir. The storm has burst at last, he thought. This great array of spears and swords is going to Osgiliath. Will Faramir get across in time? He guessed it, but did he know the hour? And who can now hold the fords when the king of the nine riders comes? And other armies will come. I am too late. All is lost. I tarried on the way. All is lost. Even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. Overcome with weakness, he wept. And still the host of Morgul crossed the bridge. Then, at a great distance, as if, as if it came out of memories of the Shire some sunlit early morning when the day called and the doors were opening, he heard Sam's voice speaking, "'Wake up, Master Frodo, wake up!' Had the voice added, "'Your breakfast is ready!' he would hardly have been surprised. Certainly Sam was urgent. "'Wake up, Mr. Frodo, they're gone!' he said. There was a dull clang. The gates of Minas Morgul had closed. The last rank of spears had vanished down the road. The tower still grinned across the valley, but the light was fading in it. The whole city was falling black into a dark, brooding shade and silence, yet still it was filled with watchfulness. "'Wake up, Mr. Frodo! They're gone, and we better go, too! There's something still alive in that place, something with eyes or a seeing mind, if you take me, and the longer we stay in one spot, the sooner it'll get onto us! Come on, Mr. Frodo!' Frodo raised his head and then stood up. Despair had not left him, but the weakness had passed. He even smiled grimly, feeling now as clearly as a moment before he had felt the opposite, that what he had to do, he had to do if he could, and that whether Faramir or Aragorn or Elrond or Galadriel or Gandalf or anyone else ever knew about it was beside the purpose. He took his staff in one hand and the file in his other. When he saw that the clear light was already welling through his fingers, he thrust it into his bosom and held it against his heart. Then turning from the city of Morgul, now no more than a grey glimmer across a dark gulf, he prepared to take the upward road. Another moment of despair here from Frodo. Um, the defeat, the the eclipse of, the occlusion of, the destruction of hope, albeit temporary. And here I'm reminded of Bilbo's journeys back in the pages of The Hobbit. I'm reminded in particular of his time spent in Mirkwood, which seems appropriate given the challenges that we're going to face in the rest of tonight's reading. Here Frodo is distraught. The storm has burst at last. This great array of spears and swords is going to Osgiliath. Will Faramir get across in time? Well, if he doesn't, all hope is lost. If he does, all hope is lost. The host here that is marching, acro uh, marching across Ithilien, now down to the crossroads, across Ithilien, across the Anduin, to Osgiliath itself, this host is not the real danger. It is the immediate problem. It is the immediate challenge. And the host is certainly capable, if not this host, then the other hosts, some of which, all of which may be greater. We have no idea of the number of orcs put into the field by Sauron at this point. That host is perfectly capable of destroying Minas Tirith. But nothing has changed here, except that Frodo has emerged from the shadow or is in the process of emerging from the shadow. 
he is clinging to the file of Galadriel, and it's no coincidence that he places it then next to his heart. That that seems to give him some kind of of comfort, some kind of strength, so that he can push on still further. But while he is brought low by despair, he is also here crippled by weakness. He falters here in a very powerful way. All is lost. I tarried on the way. All is lost. Even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. If Frodo accomplishes his task, then it will by definition not be in vain. If the entirety of Middle-earth has fallen under the shadow of Sauron and Frodo then accomplishes his task, he will still have accomplished his task. He hasn't tarried. He hasn't... He hasn't taken too long to fulfill this. He has, he set forth at the appointed hour and he has taken every right action on the way. He has, of course, been diverted from Moranon down into Athelion. He has spent that time with Faramir. He has crossed the crossroads. He is now coming up to Gareth Ungle, but he is still pursuing the quest. And the unleashing of the host of Mordor does not mean that it is too late. Frodo here, though, is focused on who he can tell. At least, what I find most fascinating about this is the inversion, right? When he is redeemed, when he is awoken, when he is returned to a certain measure of life and vitality by the words of Samwise Gamgee and this, this memory of the Shire, right? Then at a great distance as if it came out of memories of the Shire, some sunlit early morning when the day called and the doors were opening, he heard Sam's voice speaking, wake up, Mr. Frodo, wake up. Had the voice added, your breakfast is ready, he would hardly have been surprised. Certainly Sam was urgent. Like, nice. Excellent. What a beautiful evocation of, of Frodo's time back at Bag End, back in the, the safety and the comfort of the Shire and the simplicity of an earlier time, right? So Frodo falls into darkness and is roused from darkness by the memory of the Shire in much the same way as Bilbo was back in Mirkwood by his memories of, of bacon and the kettle whistling and all of those good Bag End memories that we all now presumably share in times of adversity. We all now just think of Bag End and bacon and the kettle and all these good things and, and the hobbity comfort, right? I know that I do, at least. So Frodo falls into darkness, then is roused by this memory of the Shire, by the words of Sam, and comes back to a kind of grim determination. Like, he still feels the despair, he just no longer feels weak. He doesn't believe that he's going to succeed. Despair, the absence of hope, as Gandalf has told us. He doesn't believe that he is going to succeed. He doesn't believe that there is any hope, but he has now some measure of strength so that he can push on. What is the reflective point? What What is the symmetry here around his reawakening on either side of his reawakening? Well, it's the specific ability to tell people what he has accomplished. Other armies will come. I am too late. All is lost. I tarried on the way. All is lost. Even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. What would be the purpose of telling people, Frodo? What would be the virtue and the value of telling your story? Like, um, even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. Okay, by implication, because everyone will be dead. Okay, fair enough. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. These two thoughts seemingly connected. And then when he is roused once more, we get this different perspective. He even smiled grimly, feeling now as clearly as a moment before he had felt the opposite, that what he had to do, he had to do if he could. And that whether Faramir or Aragorn or Elrond or Galadriel or Gandalf or anyone else ever knew about it was beside the purpose... Is Frodo thinking about heroism? Is Frodo thinking about fame? Is Frodo thinking about glory? 
Is he, in that moment, under the shadow of the ring, responding to the assault by the Nazgul here, by the witch king of Angmar himself, responding to this assault, the ring urges him not to seize the ring, but to seize rather the file of Galadriel. No, Frodo, says the ring, I'm not done with you yet. There are great things ahead for you. Corrupting a hobbit? That is a sweet treat. That is a tasty prize, let me tell you. We are so close now. We are, we are on the path. This is very, very good. Is this the echo that Frodo is feeling here as he despairs? Oh, no, everything is in rack and ruin. I, I took too long. I have failed at my task. I won't be able to tell everyone how awesome I am and the amazing thing that I did to save the world. I'm never going to be celebrated as a hero now. And that's the point of reflection that we get after he is reawoken by Sam. Yeah. Lynette saying, I'm afraid to say this here, gulps, but sometimes my sympathy for Gollum gets me angry at Sam for being mean to him. I mean, I get it. And Sam is just awful to him all the damn time. He's like the proof of all the bad things Gollum thinks about him and vice versa. Okay, don't hate me, y'all. You know what? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit because I discovered, uh, rediscovered, reread a letter from Professor Tolkien written in 1963 where he talks a little about Sam. We'll get to all of that in just a moment here. Okay. So that takes us through to the, the climbing up of Kirith Ungol and just some great landscape descriptions here. The descriptions that we get in this week's reading are so good. They're, they're just extraordinarily powerful. The passage seemed to go on for miles and always the chill air flowed over them, rising as they went on to a bitter wind. The mountains seemed to be trying with their deadly breath to daunt them, to turn them back from the secrets of the high places or to blow them away into the darkness behind. They only knew that they had come to the end when suddenly they felt no wall at their right hand. They could see very little. Great black shapeless masses and deep gray shadows loomed above them and about them, and now and again a dull red light flickered up under the lowering clouds, and for a moment they were all aware of tall peaks in front and on either side, like pillars holding up a vast sagging roof. They seemed to have climbed up many hundreds of feet onto a wide shelf. A cliff was on their left, and a chasm on their right. Gollum led the way close under the cliff. For the present they were no longer climbing, but the ground was now more broken and dangerous in the dark, and there were blocks and lumps of fallen stone in the way. Their going was slow and cautious. How many hours had passed since they had entered the Morgul Vale, neither Sam nor Frodo could any longer guess. The night seemed endless. At length they were once more aware of a wall looming up, and once more a stairway opened before them. Again they halted, and again they began to climb. It was a long and weary ascent, but this stairway did not delve into the mountainside. Here the huge cliff face sloped backward, and the path like a snake wound to and fro across it. At one point it crawled sideways right to the edge of a dark chasm, and Frodo, glancing down, saw below him in a vast deep pit the great ravine at the head of the Morgul Valley. Down in its depths glimmered like a glow-worm thread the wraith road from the dead city to the nameless pass. He turned hastily away. Still climbing here, pushing into the east, pushing into the darkness. We are now drawing on all of the thematic potential that we've established through the course of the Lord of the Rings up to this point. We had that little beat right back in the first slide where at Gollum's urging, Frodo turns away from the west and turns into the darkness of the east. That powerful thematic opposition has been present. Well, going back to The Hobbit, right? We talked about the, the specificity of that conflict at the turning point of The Hobbit as he's crossing the Misty Mountains, crossing from the west into the wild and then into the greater wild, into the evils of Mirkwood and the land beyond. It's not as 
developed an idea, but the thematic opposition is still present in The Hobbit. But it has been present in The Lord of the Rings from page one. We are so accustomed now to thinking of the West as being light and good and the East as being dark and evil. This is the landscape. This is, and I'm using landscape here, of course, literally, geographically, but also metaphorically, also symbolically. This is the canvas. This is the the battlefield. This is the, the tabletop board game where this conflict is going to take place between West and East and Frodo is now very, very close to the heart of the East, even as he continues to climb. Lynette's quoting here, glowworm thread the wraith road from the dead. Very good, right? Very, very strong. Yes, yes, good. Excellent. All right. Um, let's, uh, let's keep moving on. We've got to get to the drinking of the water, I guess. And then we're going to get into the real heart of tonight's reading. In a dark crevice between two great piers of rock, they sat down. Frodo and Sam a little way within, and Gollum crouched upon the ground near the opening. There the hobbits took what they expected would be their last meal before they went down into the nameless land. Maybe the last meal they would ever eat together. Some of the food of Gondor they ate, and wafers of the waybread of the elves, and they drank a little. But of their water they were sparing, and took only enough to moisten their dry mouths. "'I wonder when we'll find water again,' said Sam. "'But I suppose even over there they drink. Orcs drink, don't they?' "'Yes, they drink,' said Frodo." But do not, let, do not let us speak of that. Such drink is not for us. Then all the more need to fill our bottles, said Sam. But there isn't any water up here, not a sound or a trickle have I heard. And anyway, Faramir said we're not to drink any water in Morgul. No water flowing out of Imlad Morgul were his words, said Frodo. We are not in that valley now, and if we come on a spring it would be flowing into it, and not out of it. I wouldn't trust it, said Sam. Not till I was dying of thirst. There's a wicked feeling about this place, he sniffed, and a smell, I fancy. Do you notice it? A queer kind of smell, stuffy. I don't like it. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air and water all seem accursed. But so our path is laid. The disconnection here of Frodo, the way in which Frodo is now most fully inhabiting his own misery and wretchedness and despair, most fully and and most dimensionally, his despair here is heartbreaking. He is barely at this moment connected to Sam at all. Nitpicking what Faramir said. No water flowing out of Inlad Morgul were his words. We're not in that valley now. And if we come on a spring, it would be flowing into it and not out of it. Okay, good. Th thanks. Thanks, Frodo. Um, this is still a really bad place, though, and I don't think that we should be drinking the water, and I don't think that Faramir was terribly concerned over whether the water was flowing into or out of Morgul Vale. Like, flowing out of Morgul Vale, definitely worse. Like, no problem. It's probably glowing and reeks of carrion and death and corruption. Yeah, probably worse. Maybe still not great here either, though. And Sam wouldn't trust it anyway, he says. I wouldn't trust it. Not till I was dying of thirst. There's a wicked feeling about this place. He sniffed and a smell, I fancy. Do you notice it? A queer kind of smell. Stuffy. I don't like it. Which is, to me, a really interesting callback to Bilbo's first arrival at Rivendell, right? You remember when Bilbo arrives at Rivendell back in the pages of The Hobbit, he has that great and enigmatic line, huh, smells like elves. And we never really find out what it is that elves smell like. Like we can speculate based on is it Unfinished Tales. I forget where we get that, that very brief reference, but uh, to the, the flower-like scent of elves. But we can speculate that that is what elves smell like. But Sam here is doing the opposite. Sam here is getting the worse version of that. No, do you smell that? It smells like, well, the opposite of elves, I suppose. It smells like evil. It smells like corruption. A queer kind of smell. Stuffy. I don't like it. And Frodo 
in this very serene and placid way. You know, the the rhythmic constancy of Frodo's dialogue at this point. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air and water all seem accursed, but so our path is laid. Well, yeah, you're right, Sam. This place sucks. Would not recommend one star on a Yelp review of, of you know, visiting Kirith Ungol, the Kirith Ungol tourist board, not doing great business right now, not getting the, the love of the people at this point. No, it's awful here. But so our path is light. We have no choice. We have no hope, but we have no choice. I have just enough strength to keep going on this fruitless, pointless journey which is never going to succeed and is only going to lead to my death. I'm just going to keep going. That's all that we can do at this point. Okay, so let's get right to it. I mentioned last time that uh, if ever there was a chance of me weeping openly during a There and Back Again session, it was going to be tonight. That's not actually true. There are some times near the end of The Return of the King when I will definitely weep openly. The Battle of Palinor Fields is astonishing that moment of you catastrophe just to look ahead to the return of the king and certainly there are moments between frodo and sam right at the end of this book that will break my heart when we read them together but this is one of the most powerful sections in all of the lord of the rings for me this is one of my most uh, beloved passages so i can't wait to delve into this yes that's so said sam and we shouldn't be here at all if we'd know more about it before we started but i suppose it's often that way the brave things and the old tales and songs mr frodo Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside the story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo. But I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is, happy ending or a sad ending, but the people in it didn't know, and you don't want them to know. No, sir, of course not. Baron, no, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangaradrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it, and the Silmaril went on and came to Eärendil. And why, sir, I've never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some of the light of it in the star glass that the lady gave you. Why to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later. Or sooner. Adventures, as I used to call them. Professor Tolkien was reluctant to have his work be interpreted as anything other than a story. It has applicability, as we've discussed before. It can be philosophically, theologically, morally relevant. It can be powerful. It can be compelling. It can be propulsive. It can mean things to the reader in myriad different ways. But that resides not, as Professor Tolkien says back in On Fairy Stories, not in the tyrannical domination of the author, but in the engagement of the reader 
The author doesn't get to decide what the story means. He's reflecting there something that uh, C.S. Lewis talked about, that, that authors have intentions and stories have meanings, and sometimes those two things are in alignment, and sometimes they are not so much in alignment. Professor Tolkien didn't intend The Lord of the Rings to be a manual to live a better life. He didn't intend The Lord of the Rings to be interpreted as anything other than a story. That's not to say that you can't, but that wasn't its primary purpose. But here, for those of us who have read a lot of the professor's work, not just his fiction, but his letters and the brilliant on fairy stories essay and some of his shorter stories and, and all the, the wide and sprawling body of work that he produced over the course of his illustrious career, we might recognize some elements of Sam's dialogue here as being possibly the closest representation of how Professor Tolkien felt about stories, about what stories are and what they're for. And here Sam is putting together a very sophisticated counter-argument against the kind of analytical interpretation which many critics engage in. The story exists unto itself. The story has a power and a presence and a unity and a momentum unto itself that can be understood to a certain extent, that can certainly be engaged with, that can yield an experiential reward, a, a, an, an emotional reward, even an intellectual reward. But the story itself is unchanged by that. The story itself doesn't care about the analysis of the story. The story itself continues onward. The external and internal worlds of narrative are disconnected from one another, or at least should be disconnected from one another. But that's not the point, really, of what Sam is expressing here. Some stories have happy endings. Some stories are simple. And he even calls out the best point of comparison for The Lord of the Rings itself here. And we've done this before, of course. Frodo has said to Bilbo before, it's not a there and back again journey. It's not the same. Like, I am not going on an adventure and then returning home again. I'm going to my death. Like, that's how this is going to work out. There's not a chance that I'm going to succeed. Or if there is a chance it is so slim as to be utterly negligible, this is not that kind of story at all. We hear about those as just went on, says Sam. First of all, okay, so first off, we don't hear the stories of the people who gave up. We don't hear the stories of the people who turned back. We don't hear the stories necessarily even of those people who failed in ignominious circumstances. The heroic failure, certainly, we'll hear those stories possibly from time to time. But the people who abrogated their narrative responsibility, the people who stepped out of the story, the people who said no to adventure and closed the door and sent the dwarves packing and didn't go off to Erebor, didn't run out of their house without so much as a handkerchief at 10 o'clock the following morning, those people we never hear about. We hear about the people who go on. I expect they had lots of chances like us of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on and not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. Hey, Sam, that's some strong literary criticism right there. Yes, the people inside the story might consider the ending good. They might consider the ending brilliant. The end of the story, like, I have been going on this adventure, I have fought a dragon, and the end of the story is, oh, someone super magical shows up and gives me a big thing of riches and a bacon sandwich and magically teleports me home, and it's fantastic. Like, okay, that's a good ending for the people inside the story, but not necessarily for the people outside the story. But the people inside the story and outside the story can agree on a good ending. You know, coming home and finding things all right, but not quite the same like old Mr. Bilbo. Coming home and finding things all right, but not quite the same. Sam there also tying back to this tradition of fairy stories. That is what happens in fairy stories. Mortals go into the realm of fairy, and when they come out, things are not the same. Hundreds of years have passed. They themselves have been transformed physically or mentally or, or spiritually or emotionally. Something has happened in the world. There's some, you know, monkey's paw curse has, has afflicted their loved ones in their absence. 
something has changed. We are never left unchanged by fairy. And Sam, of course, understands that. And then, those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. And then... Frodo responds, I wonder, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take anyone that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know and you don't want them to know. And Sam agrees. Like, if he is trying here to console Frodo, then he would say, no, no, no. The people in the story, they, they keep going and good people get good endings. Paraphrasing Oscar Wilde, I am, Master Frodo. Paraphrasing Oscar Wilde, I can say that the good ended well and the bad ended, the bad ended unhappily. And that's what fiction means, right? That's Sam's consolation there. That's his offer of consolation. But no, he agrees because we're talking about stories and stories are too important to kind of to, to fudge in this regard. No, sir, of course not. Baron, now, he never thought he was, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. Okay, this fictional story that we've heard, not a fictional story, this deep history of the world that we have heard, it's worse than ours. Like, he, he faced greater dangers than, than we did going into Thangorodrim to try and get the Silmaril back, but that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. Ultimately, all stories will pass from happiness into grief and beyond grief and back into happiness and so on and so forth. That there will be ultimately a balance in this unending tale, in this unceasing story that is being written about the world by the world. There will never be an ending. There will never be a final note. There will never be a point of cathartic or frustrating resolution. We are never going to reach the period at the end of the story. We are instead just going to continue to push on. And from great grief, joy will be found. Joy will be made. Joy is rebellious. And in the midst of that joy, tragedy and catastrophe will strike. And grief will blossom once more. That is part of the beauty and the fragility and the inconstancy of the world, the fluidity of the world. This is something that Tolkien is absolutely seeking to represent. And I suppose that I should talk a little about the Silmarillion here. We've had mention of uh, Baron and Luthien before, of course. Um, in fact, let me see here. I did pull this slide because we, we've heard the story of, of, let me put this up. I'll put this up so you guys can read it, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'll resist the urge to, uh, to, to read this aloud to you as great as it is. This is taken from chapter 11 of book one of The Lord of the Rings. This is after, uh, after Aragorn has recited the poem of, of Baron and Luthien and uh, is now reciting in Westron in the common speech, the version of the story that we get here. If you are listening to the audio version of this podcast and you want to read along with this, then you can uh, check the show notes for the downloadable link to the PDF of all the slides that I use in every live session here. Um, so we've heard about Baron before. We've heard about Luthien before. We've heard in the context of this story about uh, Thangorodrim and about the seizing of the Silmaril and about the eventual, you know, turning of the story toward Arendel and the light of the, the star that is now contained within the file that Frodo carries near his heart. And all of these stories had by this point already been written. We're going to get reference uh, later in tonight's reading to Ungoliant, and we're going to get reference next week's reading to Turin. Not the first reference that we get to Turin, but uh, uh, the second Turin has already been named by Elrond as one of the great elf friends of old. You remember back at the Council of Elrond when he's saying, hey, Frodo, if you do this, then you are going to be right there with the greatest heroes of our history. Like, good job. And he name checks Turin there. These stories had already been written, but this must not be misunderstood. It is very tempting to read The Lord of the Rings in a modern context and to look at these references as being 
Easter eggs, as being playful winks. This is Tolkien giving the reader finger guns here. Hey, you read the Silmarillion. You know what's up. You know what's happening. But when The Lord of the Rings was published, the number of people in the entire world who had read the Silmarillion was, well, certainly less than 10, possibly even less than five. Tolkien's publishers, Ed Allen and Unwin, had read The Silmarillion and sadly rejected it. Christopher Tolkien had read The Silmarillion. C.S. Lewis had read The Silmarillion. But very few people had read even a significant part of the stories that Tolkien had produced. Now, they were all in his mind. This is a part of the the narrative continuum that Tolkien is establishing at this point in his career. But this is not a playful reference. This is not an MCU-style Easter egg here for the reader. This is more in the mode of that illusion of depth that we've discussed before. Tolkien has fully realized the ancient history of this world, but you had no opportunity to read more about Turin, right? Baron and Luthien, you get that version of the story that Aragorn gives you, and that is it. You get nothing about Turin, Turin Bar, like nothing at all, besides the two, three, two references? I forget now. I think two or three references. I think it may only be two references in the entirety of this book. We don't get any reference. We get, okay, we get one reference and almost no exploration of Ungoliant in this book at all. These stories, though they are real and pressing to Tolkien, though they are, they are pieces of the greater world to Tolkien, are not intended to be communicative of anything of substance to the reader. They are instead supposed to be evocative. They give us this illusion of depth. Sam reciting, Sam paraphrasing this story that he has been told by Aragorn is an absolutely beautiful thing, but it is not necessarily supposed to be connecting back in a in an intellectual sense to the work that Tolkien has already produced and the work that will later be published as the Silmarillion after his death, some 20 years after the end of, uh, after the uh, publication of The Lord of the Rings. Okay, I'm glancing at the clock and feeling a little nervous. Let's see what we can do to keep pushing on. So this is the continuation of this sequence, the second half of the sequence talking about stories. And then we could have a rest and some sleep, said Sam. He laughed grimly. And I mean just that, Master Frodo. I mean plain, ordinary rest and sleep and waking up to a morning's work in the garden. I'm afraid that's all I'm hoping for all the time. All the big, important plans are not for my sort. Still, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales. We're in one, of course, but I mean put into words, you know, told by the fireside or read out of a great big book with red and black letters years and years afterwards. And people will say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the famousest of the hobbits, and that's saying a lot. Saying a lot too much, said Frodo, and he laughed, a long, clear laugh from his heart. Such a sound had not been heard in those places since Sauron came to Middle-earth. To Sam, suddenly it seemed as if all the stones were listening and the tall rocks leaning over them. But Frodo did not heed them. He laughed again. Why, Sam, he said, to hear you somehow makes me as merry as if the story were already written. But you've left out one of the chief characters, Samwise the Stout-Hearted. I want to hear more about Sam, Dad. Why didn't they put in more of his talk, Dad? That's what I like. It makes me laugh. And Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam, would he, Dad? No, Master Frodo, said Sam. You shouldn't make fun. I was serious. So was I, said Frodo. And so I am. We're going on a bit too fast. You and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst places of the story, and it's all too likely that some will say at this point, Shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read any more. Maybe, said Sam, but I wouldn't be one to say that. 
Things done and over and made into part of the great tales are different. Why, even Gollum might be good in a tale, better than he is to have by you, anyway. And he used to like tales himself once, by his own account. I wonder if he thinks he's the hero or the villain. Gollum will imminently be very upset with Sam for calling him a villain. More on that in just a moment. The recasting of this tale and the illumination that this brings to Frodo, the the restoration that this brings to Frodo. It's saying a lot too much, said Frodo, and he laughed a long, clear laugh from his heart. Such a sound had not been heard in these places since Sauron came to Middle-earth. This is unprecedented here at Kerith Ungol, here on the very borders of Mordor itself. This laughter, this joy, it's not just amusement at Sam, it's the recognition of something greater, of something more true, the contextualization of this experience. Yes, it feels grim right now, but someday it's going to be a part of history. Someday it's going to be a part of a story, and yes, someday maybe we will be read from, from a a great impressive book with red and black letters, and we may well indeed be, or even a book with a red cover, perhaps, the, you know, a book that may be written long after these events have transpired. That restoration, what stories can do, that that recovery and consolation we are now seeing happen to Frodo within the context of his story. He is being given restoration by a story as that story is unfolding around him because of the wisdom of Samwise Gamgee. It's exceptional and, of course, utterly, utterly touching. Let's hear about Frodo in the ring and they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? You'll note there, too, Sam's commitment to his narrative art referring to Frodo as just Frodo, because that's what the people who are reading this magical book will, it's not magical in the magical sense, but magical in the mythic, transportive, brilliant, narrative is awesome sense. That is how those people will refer to Frodo. So that is how Sam refers to Frodo. He's not talking about Master Frodo or Mr. Frodo right now. Now he's talking about just Frodo, that character from the story. Remember that story of Frodo and the ring? And then Frodo turns it back on Sam. Uh, A moment of recognition that I guess we've had glimmers of up until this point, but but very few and very fleeting. It's been since Parth Gallon that we really had a moment of of absolute connection between Frodo and Sam, a moment of, of real intimacy between Frodo and Sam. This is very different. But Frodo did not heed them. He laughed again. Why, Sam, he said, to hear you somehow makes me as merry as if the story were already written, but you've left out one of the chief characters, Samwise the Stout-Hearted. Samwise the courageous, Samwise the the indefatigable. This is how Frodo is seeing Sam at this moment. And then he slips into quotation too. I want to hear more about Sam, Dad. Why didn't they put in more of his talk, Dad? That's what I like. It makes me laugh. Hey, Sam, your dialogue is pretty awesome and pretty amusing, by the way. And the kids, the kids are going to love it. Trust me on this. And Frodo wouldn't have gotten far without Sam, would he, Dad? Of course, he wouldn't. Frodo would not have gotten very far without Sam at all. Now, Master Frodo, said Sam, you shouldn't make fun. I was serious. So was I, and so I am. It's a beautiful moment of intimacy, a a moment of profound connection between these two, these two men who have endured so, these two, I'm going to be corrected by Pippin at the beginning of Return of the King, not men, absolutely not men, hobbits, very clearly. These two hobbits, these two characters, these two individuals who have endured so much and still have so much yet to endure. And then, of course, Gollum. I wonder if he thinks he's the hero or the villain. Well, let's take a look right at the end of this chapter and a different perspective on Samwise Gamgee. 
And so Gollum found them hours later when he returned, crawling and creeping down the path out of the gloom ahead. Sam sat propped against the stone, his head dropping sideways and his breathing heavy. In his lap lay Frodo's head, drowned deep in sleep. Upon his white forehead lay one of Sam's brown hands, and the other lay softly upon his master's breast. Peace was in both their faces. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and grey, old and tired. A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up toward the pass, shaking his head as if engaged in some interior debate. Then he came back, and slowly putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously he touched Frodo's knee. But almost the touch was a caress. For a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin and the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. But at that touch, Frodo stirred and cried out softly in his sleep, and immediately Sam was wide awake. The first thing he saw was Gollum, pawing at Master, as he thought. "'Hey, you!' he said roughly. "'What are you up to?' "'Nothing, nothing,' said Gollum softly." "'Nice master.' "'I dare say,' said Sam. "'But where have you been to, sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain?' Gollum withdrew himself, and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. "'Sneaking! Sneaking!' he hissed. "'Hobbits always so polite. Yes. Oh, nice hobbits. Smeagol brings them secret ways that nobody else could find. Tired he is. Thirsty he is. Yes, thirsty. And he guides them, and he searches for paths, and they say, "'Sneak! Sneak! Very nice, friends. Oh, yes, my precious, very very nice. Sam felt a bit remorseful, though not more trustful. Sorry, he said. I'm sorry, but you startled me out of my sleep. And I shouldn't have been sleeping and that made me a bit sharp. But Mr. Frodo, he's that tired I asked him to have a wink and, well, that's how it is. Sorry, but where have you been to? Sneaking, said Gollum. And the green glint did not leave his eyes. It is really easy to miss the import of this sequence. It is really easy to gloss over this and to think of Gollum as he has been and Gollum as he will be and to miss what is happening at this moment. Because this, well, there is not no hope, but there is some hope. This is the hope of Gollum's redemption. This is the moment of Gollum's redemption. This is the moment where Gollum can turn away from all of the evil and wickedness and corruption of his past and becomes something greater and it falters because of Sam. So what has happened here is that after talking about stories, Sam has encouraged Frodo to rest, to lay his head upon Sam's lap and to, to sleep just a little and that is how Gollum finds them. And so Gollum found them hours later when he returned. Sam sat propped against the stone, his head dropping sideways and his breathing heavy. In his lap lay Frodo's head, drowned deep in sleep. Upon his white forehead lay one of Sam's brown hands and the other lay softly upon his master's breast. Peace, peace was in both their faces. The opposition there of white and brown, indicative of the difference in social class between Frodo and Sam, but also indicative of the wound that has afflicted Frodo, the burden that has afflicted Frodo, that he is becoming now pale. He is becoming now less and less 
vibrant, less and less the hobbit that he was, and m- something more ethereal, something more disconnected from the living landscape around him. Well, the living landscape that was around him, at least back in Athelion. Gollum looked at them, a strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, this gleam representative of evil. Remember the pale light and the green light that we discussed earlier? That has now gone. The light is gone, and they were dim and gray, old and tired. Neither green nor pale now. Dim and gray, old and tired. He has the spasm of pain. Then he's looking up at the past. He's shaking his head as if engaged in some interior debate, we are told. What is the interior debate in which Gollum is engaged in this point? Well, he's questioning his decision to lead the hobbits up to Kirith Ungol, to give them to her, to deliver them into the less-than-loving embrace of Shelob. Then he came back and slowly putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously he touched Frodo's knee, but almost the touch was a caress. For a fleeting moment could one of the sleepers have seen him. They would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin and the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. And for a moment, that is what Gollum is. And that moment endures. It endures even beyond the waking of Sam. Hey, you, he said roughly, what are you up to? Nothing, nothing, said Gollum softly. Nice master. He's not defending himself to my reading. At least I guess there is a way of delivering that line that would suggest a greater, a greater defensive attitude, uh, a greater opposition to Sam, a greater sense of the coming conflict, at least. But the softly there indicates to me that Gollum is actually sincere in this moment. Nothing, nothing. Nice master. And it's only when Sam accuses him, sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain, Gollum withdrew himself and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs. So we're, we're doubling down on this idea that he is now less hobbity, less human, less less a person, more a creature than he was just moments ago. Almost spider-like he looked now. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. That's it. That was the hope. That was the hope for Gollum. That was the hope for Smeagol. And it's been vanquished. In a 1963 letter to Eileen Elgar, just a, a reader of The Lord of the Rings who got in touch with Professor Tolkien, he, he responded to this letter and wrote, quote, he plainly is talking about Sam, of course. He plainly did not understand Frodo's motives or his distress at the incident of the Forbidden Pool. If he had understood better what was going on between Frodo and Gollum, things might have turned out differently in the end. For me, perhaps the most tragic moment in the tale comes in 2323. This is the page reference here. This is the most tragic moment in the tale, by the professor's account. When Sam fails to notice the complete change in Gollum's tone and aspect, nothing, nothing, said Gollum softly, nice master. His repentance is blighted and all Frodo's pity is, in a sense, wasted. Shelob's lair became inevitable. Up until this point, the path of the story, the path of this story that Frodo and Sam were just discussing, was not fixed. There was still hope. And now there is not. Now there is no hope of redemption for Gollum. Now in the end, that lack of redemption actually works out quite well. Minus spoilers for the end of The Return of the King, you guys. And... We can see a certain eucatastrophic functionality here, a certain a, a certain eucatastrophic element to Sam's protectiveness here, his his protective desire to to take care of Frodo. But it is still in this moment a tragic choice. Goodness could have come from Gollum at this point, and now it didn't. Good. Um, let me see here. Seastar saying, would a changed Gollum have told them to turn around and go back? Would they have done so? Hadn't he just gone to alert Shelob? 
who can say? Who can say what that changed golem could have done? I mean, there is something so frail and fragile, not just about this description, but about a lot of the descriptions that we get of Gollum. Like, he is driven by this this unearthly hunger, this corrupt hunger, this desire for the ring. This has driven him on for so long. But for a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin, beyond the fields and streams of his youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. If Frodo had been awake for this, if, if, mm, okay, I don't want to write fan fiction about the Lord of the Rings, but this is to me how I, I, how I have internalized this moment, this possibility of redemption. I see a version of this scene where Frodo embraces Gollum, comforts Gollum, and Gollum dies. That that is it. That 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 Smeagol, excuse me, this old, tired, starved, pitiable hobbit who has endured not just the the spreading of too little butter over too much bread that Bilbo has endured, but five times that amount, more than five times that amount. That is what Gollum is, and I wonder. Yeah, I, I don't think that a restored and replenished Gollum would have continued in the world for very long. That is that is certainly my reading of it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good. All right. So with that, we come to the end of chapter eight and we move into chapter nine. We're probably not going to make it through all of chapter nine since, uh, yes, I'm already an hour and five minutes into tonight's live broadcast, but uh, that's okay because next week we're only doing the uh, we're only doing chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. So I did pad the schedule just a little bit. So if we don't quite finish up this chapter this week, we can, uh, we can push on. But let us waste no more time. Let us get into Shelob's lair itself. Drawing a deep breath, they passed inside. In a few steps, they were in utter and impenetrable dark. Not since the lightless passages of Moria had Frodo or Sam known such darkness, and if possible, here it was deeper and denser. There, there were airs moving, and echoes and a sense of space. Here, the air was still, stagnant, heavy, and sound fell dead. They walked, as it were, in a black vapour wrought of veritable darkness itself, that, as it was breathed, brought blindness not only to the eyes but to the mind, so that even the memory of colours and of forms and of any light faded out of thought. Night always had been, always would be, and night was all. But for a while they could still feel, and indeed the senses of their feet and fingers at first seemed sharpened almost painfully. The walls felt, to their surprise, smooth and the floor, save for a step now and again, was straight and even, going ever up at the same, the same stiff slope. The tunnel was high and wide, so wide that though the hobbits walked abreast, only touching the side walls with their outstretched hands, they were separated, cut off alone in the darkness. Gollum had gone in first and seemed to be only a few steps ahead. While they were still able to give heed to such things, they could hear his breath hissing and gasping just in front of them. But after a time, their senses became duller. Both touch and hearing seemed to grow numb, and they kept on, groping, walking, on and on, mainly by the force of the will with which they had entered, will to go through and desire to come at last to the high gate beyond. This is the lair of Shelob. And there were a couple of direct connections, one of which, of course, ties back to, for those of us who have read the Silmarillion, to the unlight of Ungoliant, that... Ungoliant, um, the the mother, I suppose, of of Shelob here was a primordial being, a being from the darkness beyond Arda, who takes the form of a giant spider, a giant, repulsive, terrifying spider, an ally of Melkor in the first age, and and uh, a weaver of great and terrible darkness, drinker of the light of the trees of Valinor, and and 
weaver of 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 actual darkness, of unlight, of of a positive darkness, the opposite of light, right? In the sense that the darkness of Moria is the absence of light. The darkness of Shelob's lair is the opposite of light. This is the kind of thing that we're engaged with here. And this darkness doesn't just sap the ability to see, but saps the ability to see in the broadest and most metaphorical sense, right? It, it saps will and presence and acuity and awareness. It drains you of all that you are and leaves you wreathed only in darkness. And of course, this is weirdly evocative too of of Gollum's riddle, his darkness riddle, back from chapter five of The Hobbit, the riddles in the dark chapter. Gollum's riddle is this. Um, it cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies under stars and under hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life and kills laughter. The answer to which is dark or darkness. Night always had been and always would be and night was all. Now you remember back when we talked about The Hobbit that this is part of Gollum's worldview. This is this is part of his cosmology, right? This is in response to the the vision of life and sunlight and positivity and energy that Bilbo is presenting throughout his riddles. Gollum instead is is draining the life and 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 energy from the world. And here he's indicating that the world is bounded on all sides by darkness, that it is bounded on all sides by nothingness. It comes first and follows after, ends life and kills laughter. This is what the darkness does. And we see that here embodied actually rather beautifully through, uh, through Shelob. Yeah. Good. Seastar says, The seemingly everlasting night echoes a passage I recently read in a, in a, that accurately describes a character's experience of depression. Here the darkness and despair are external as well as internal, though the hobbits are less internal than Shelob would like. Ha ha. Good. Good pun. I like that. Yes, ultimately the, the hobbits will be, if Shelob's plan works out, if Gollum's plan works out, actually pretty internalized for Shelob herself. But yes, that, that, this, this connection between darkness and despair. And as I said right back at the beginning of tonight's session, this is, of course, a primary thematic uh, conflict at the heart of the Lord of the Rings, at the heart of Tolkien's, God, not just his secondary creation, not just his fictional world, but his conception of the real world, right? This is a part of Tolkien's theology. Light and hope versus darkness and despair. Good versus evil. This is like the the, the opposition. This is the conflict that that drives the world forward in, in the truest sense and also, of course, informs, is, is distilled, is heightened, is made somewhat more hyperbolic in his secondary creation, but is still functionally true, still has that, that same kind of, of, of metaphorical utility to it. So, yes. We get, um, yes, good, good. We get here the, uh, yeah, let's, let's move ahead. I, I do want to get a few more slides ahead, and this is a long one as we get the actual confrontation. And we get Sam channeling his best Admiral Akbar here at the beginning of the slide. It's a trap, said Sam, and he laid his hand upon the hilt of his sword, and as he did, th did so, he thought of the darkness and the barrow whence it came. I wish old Tom was near us now, he thought. Then, as he stood, darkness about him and a blackness of despair and anger in his heart, it seemed to him that he saw a light, a light in his mind, almost unbearably bright at first as a sunray to the eyes of one long hidden in a windowless pit. Then the light became color, green, gold, silver, white. Far off, as in little pictures drawn by elven fingers, he saw the Lady Galadriel standing on the grass in Lorien, and gifts were in her hands. And you, ring-bearer, 
he heard her say, remote but clear, for you I have prepared this. The bubbling hiss drew nearer, and there was a creaking as of some great jointed thing that moved with slow purpose in the dark. A reek came on before it. Master! Master! cried Sam, and life and urgency came back into his voice. The lady's gift! The star glass! A light to you in dark places, she said it was to be the star glass! The star glass, muttered Frodo, as one answering out of sleep, hardly comprehending. Why, yes! Why had I forgotten it? A light when all other lights go out, and now indeed light alone can help us! Slowly his hand went to his bosom, and slowly he held aloft the file of Galadriel. For a moment it glimmered, faint as a rising star struggling in heavy earthward mists, and then as its power waxed, and hope grew in Frodo's mind, it began to burn and kindled to a silver flame, a minute heart of dazzling light, as though Eärendil had himself come down from the high sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it, until it seemed to shine in the center of a globe of airy crystal, and the hand that held it sparkled with white fire. Frodo gazed in wonder at this marvellous gift that he had so long carried, not guessing its full worth and potency. Seldom had he remembered it on the road until they came to Morgul Vale, and never had he used it for fear of its revealing light. Aya, Erendil, Elenian, and Kalima, he cried, and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his, clear, untroubled by the foul air of the pit. But other potencies there are in Middle-earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong, and she that walked in the darkness had heard the elves cry that cry far back in the deeps of time, and she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. Even as Frodo spoke, he felt a great malice bent upon him, and a deadly regard considering him. Not far down the tunnel, between them and the opening where they had reeled and stumbled, he was aware of eyes growing visible, two great clusters of many-windowed eyes. The coming menace was unmasked at last." The radiance of the star-glass was broken and thrown back from their thousand facets, but behind the glitter a pale, deadly fire began steadily to glow within, a flame kindled in some deep pit of evil thought. Monstrous and abominable eyes they were, bestial and yet filled with purpose and with hideous delight, gloating over their prey trapped beyond all hope of escape. This is terrifying this is absolutely terrifying the bubbling hiss drew nearer and there was a creaking as of some great jointed thing that moved with slow purpose in the dark as we've commented before tolkien has a great power with the horrific with horrifying fiction it's never better than this for my money it's never darker than this it's never more distressing than this this first encounter with shilob is awful and and absolutely traumatizing quite frankly if you are an arachnophobe because you read the lord of the rings when you were a young child then you have my sympathy and you are not alone i guarantee that as ever we must pay close attention to the sequence of events here we must pay close attention to what actually happens on the page in front of us and not be distracted by a gloss of these events that may lead us to incorrect conclusions or lead us to make a movie that kind of fundamentally understands what's happening at this point. Unlike the Peter Jackson film, uh, Frodo here does not call out a spell that activates the file. That is not what happens. The sequence of events is very important. So, Sam realizes that it's a trap. He grabs his sword. He's reminded of the barrow. Hey, the barrow. Wasn't it cool when Tom Bombadil saved us that time? I wish that he could save us now. I wish old Tom were near us now, he thought. Then, as he stood darkness about him and a blackness of despair and anger in his heart, it seemed to him that he saw a light. A light that comes almost unbearably bright as a summary to, to the eyes of one long hidden in a windowless pit. Then the light became color. Green, gold, silver, and white. From where does this light come? 
what is happening to Sam right now in this moment. This is clearly not a memory. It isn't framed as a memory. It isn't framed in the way that we frame memories, typically, in The Lord of the Rings. It also isn't framed in quite the same way as we usually frame dream sequences or, or visions or, or other kinds of disassociative things. This seems to be happening to Sam in the here and now. Far off, as in a little picture drawn by elven fingers, he saw the Lady Galadriel standing on the grass in Lorien and gifts were in her hands, and you, Ringbearer, he heard her say, remote but clear, for you I have prepared this, italicizing that dialogue there, not offsetting it in quotation marks so we're getting the sense that it is a part of Sam's internal monologue right that he is hearing and sensing these things more than they are actually words being spoken aloud here he gets the memory of Galadriel is it okay here's the question is the memory of Galadriel spurred by the memory of Tom is Tom Bombadil's presence here in Kirith Ungol here in Shelob's lair somehow active within Sam and inspires him to remember this exchange with Galadriel? Or is there something else happening here? Because Sam himself is not, it would seem likely, having this thought. Then as he stood, darkness about him and a blackness of despair and anger in his heart. Sam is done. He's, he's overcome with darkness at this point. But then the light shines upon him anyway. And he remembers, of course, the lady's gift, the star glass, a light to you in dark places, she said it was to be the star glass. And Frodo, too, has forgotten about it, despite the fact that he was holding it in his hand at the beginning of the last chapter when facing down the witch king of Angmar and the host leaving behind uh, Minas Morgul. So it's here, it's clasped on his heart. And also, parenthetically, when he was sleeping with his head in Sam's lap, you'll remember Sam's one hand is on his, his forehead and the other over his heart, over where the file is beneath his, his uh, clothing here. So he draws it out. For a moment it glimmered, faint as a rising star, struggling in heavy earthward mists, and then as its power waxed and hope grew in Frodo's mind. As its power waxed, and at the same time, hope grew in Frodo's mind, it began to burn and kindled to a silver flame, a minute heart of dazzling light, as though Air Randall himself had come down from the high sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it until it seemed to shine in the center of a globe of airy crystal. This is one of my favorite uh, pieces of imagery that Tolkien gives us in The Lord of the Rings. This globe of airy crystal, because the interaction of the light and dark here, even if we didn't know about Ungoliant, which of course no one at this time did, even if we didn't know about the weaving of unlight, which of course at this time no one did, we still get a sense of the, the positive presence of darkness within the layer of Shelob because we get to see the interaction of that darkness with light. The light doesn't just drive back the darkness. It enters into a war against the darkness. The darkness is a physical, tangible thing that is being pushed back by the light of the last Silmaril here. Frodo gazed in wonder at this marvelous gift he had so long carried, not guessing its full worth and potency. And then we get the account. Seldom had he remembered it on the road until they came to Morgul Vale, and never had he used it for fear of its revealing light. And then he calls out, he cries out in the midst of this thought, never had he used it for fear of its revealing light. Had he but known of its power, etc., etc. No, we cut that paragraph right there, right in the middle of the paragraph, right in the middle of the thought. We cut to, Aya Erenda Lelenian and Kalima, he cried, and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his clear, untroubled by the foul air of the pit. This comes through Frodo. This comes from somewhere else, which, hey, we've kind of had hints of before, right? Remember back on Weathertop as he's facing down the Nazgul? Elbereth Gilthoniel, he calls out, is that Frodo doing that? Or is that coming from a 
deeper and truer and brighter place within him or or beyond him is is he the source of that exclamation of that cry there as we question he's the source of this cry here or is it coming through him from somewhere else and then the narrative takes its turn and the narrative voice the the narrator in the broadest sense that there isn't a strong sense of a narrator in this part of the book not the way that there is you know way back at the beginning of uh, the fellowship of the ring the narrative voice does something that it does very rarely and this is not completely unprecedented but it is it is leading us to anticipate more unorthodox narrative representation within the frame of this reading than we've seen previously in the lord of the rings but other potencies there are in Middle-earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong, and she that walked in the darkness had heard the elves cry that cry far back in the deeps of time, and she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. Look at what the narrative does. We're absolutely locked in Sam's POV. We flick around into Frodo's POV, and now we pull back from both of them. We pull back to the enormity, to the magnitude, to the malice of Shelob. Other potencies there are in Middle-earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong. So this potency, this power of night that is old and strong is warring with the power of light, which is also presumably old and strong. She that walked in the darkness had heard, heard the elves cry that cry far back in the deeps of time. She had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. Even as Frodo spoke, he felt a great malice bent upon him and a deadly regard considering him. The radiance of the star glass was broken and thrown back from their thousand facets, the thousand facets of Shelob's eyes, which, parenthetically, People criticize Shelob for not being a spider, which is, I mean, in a sense, she is spider-like, right? Spiders do not have stingers and do not have compound eyes. Shelob is possessed of both of those things. She is not a spider in the technical sense, but she is arachnish. She is spider-esque. She is spider-like more than she is an actual literal spider. And you'll note, too, that Shelob isn't here driven back by the light, She's driven back by, well, other potencies there are in Middle-earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong. So, is Frodo calling out these elven words here, This, uh, uh, which translates, by the way, as Hail to Eärendil, brightest of stars. That's what he calls out, the Aya Eärendil, Elenian, and Kalima. That's Hail to Elendil, brightest of stars. That's the literal Sindarin translation there. Is she daunted by this? No, she is not daunted by this. The narrator tells her, uh, tells us specifically that she is not daunted by this. Uh, she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. No, she's heard these words before. These words are having no effect on her. Then, even as Frodo spoke, he felt the great malice bent upon him in a deadly regard, considering him not far down the tunnel between them and the opening where they had reeled and stumbled, he was aware of eyes growing visible. The light itself is pushing back against Shelob here. Um... Good. Uh, yes, Brian is saying that spiders are descendants from Ungoliant and Shelob. Yes. Um, let me see here. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so, okay. Shelob is the last descendant of Ungoliant. Ungoliant is this 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 um, shapeless, formless primordial that comes from the darkness outside of Arda, right? From space outside of Arda. Ungoliant comes to Middle-earth and, and allies with Melkor and Ungoliant is, is bad news, you guys. Just really, really bad news. So Shelob is the last of his great descendants and has been here in Kirith Ungol from before Sauron came to Middle-earth. Like, she has been here in Kirith Ungol for basically, effectively, forever. She has, well, in fact, let's get to it because we have this, I, I think I pulled this slide, if I recall. Um, 
Yes, we have the, uh, yeah, okay, this is it, in fact. Good, perfect. The pass, Sam, he cried, not heeding the shrillness of his voice that released from the choking airs of the tunnel rang out high and wild. The pass, run, run, and we'll be through, through before anyone can stop us. Sam came up behind as fast as he could urge his legs, but glad as he was to be free, he was uneasy, and he ran. He kept on, as he ran, excuse me, he kept on glancing back to the dark arch of the tunnel, fearing to see eyes or some shape beyond his imagining spring out in pursuit. Too little did he or his master know of the craft of Shelob. She had many exits from her lair. There, age long, she had dwelt, an evil thing in spider form, even such as old as once of old had lived in the land of elves in the west that is now under the sea, such as Baron fought in the mountains of terror in Doriath, and so came to Luthien upon the green sward amid the hemlocks in the moonlit, moonlight long ago. How Shelob came there, flying from ruin, no tale tells, but out of the dark years few tales have come. But still, she was there, who was there before Sauron, and before the first stone of Barad-dûr. She served none but herself, drinking the blood of elves and men, bloated and grown fat with endless brooding on her feasts, weaving webs of shadow, for all living things were her food and her vomit darkness. Far and wide her lesser broods, bastard of the miserable mates, her own offspring that she slew, spread from glen to glen, from the Ethelduath to the eastern hills, to Dol Guldur and the fastness of Mirkwood, but none could rival her, Shelob the Great, last child of Ungoliant, to trouble the unhappy world. Already, years before, Gollum had beheld her, Smeagol, who had pried into all dark holes, and in past days he had bowed and worshipped her, and the darkness of her evil will walked through all the ways of his weariness beside him, cutting him off from the light and from regret, and he had promised to bring her food. But her lust was not his lust. Little she knew of or cared for towers or rings or anything devised by mind or hand, who only desired death for all others, mind and body, and for herself a glut of life alone, swollen till the mountains could no longer hold her up and the darkness could not contain her. What is it that Shelob wants? She wants to eat everything. She wants to consume all life. That is her purpose, is to consume all life until she is the last thing living and so swollen upon that, that banquet of life that she has consumed, so engorged and enlarged by this feasting that she is greater than mountains and the darkness cannot contain her. And that's a really ambiguous beat that I find potentially heartbreakingly tragic. Is this desire of Shelob? To escape the darkness, the darkness could not contain her. Ultimately, if she gets her wish, if she feasts upon every spark of life here in Middle-earth and grows so vast that she breaks free of this prison of darkness that binds her, it's possible we just don't know enough. So she is descended from Ungoliant, the, the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world, and then we get the... the Accounting here of the spiders of Mirkwood, far and wide her lesser broods, bastards of the miserable mates, her own offspring that she slew, spread from glen to glen, from the Ethelduath to the eastern hills, to Dol Guldur and the fastness of Mirkwood. Dol Guldur, you remember, is the bastion of the necromancer in Mirkwood. That's where the White Council take action to drive out the necromancer and drive... The necromancer is Sauron, you guys. To drive the necromancer, a.k.a. Sauron, back to Mordor during the events of The Hobbit. And also, yes, to parse the uh, compound clauses there that we get, far and wide her lesser broods. Okay, far and wide her children, bastards of the miserable mates, so the, the illegitimate children of her mates, her own offspring, that she slew. So she mates with her own offspring, 
to produce this brood of illegitimate children and she kills the, the, the mates that she chooses from her own brood. This is where the other spiders come from. This is where all the black spiders in Mirkwood come from. They are the descendants of Shelob herself. And she has been here for the longest time and she doesn't care. She doesn't care about rings and doesn't care about towers and doesn't care about Sauron, who interestingly knows her. I mentioned earlier, and we'll make this the last slide here. Um, <laughs> I mentioned earlier that the narrative voice in this reading does some really interesting things. And the narrative voice is about to do something which, to the best of my recollection, is completely unprecedented within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Because we are about to get Sauron POV, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is. And as for Sauron, he knew where she lurked. It pleased him that she should dwell there, hungry but unabated in malice, a more sure watch upon the ancient path into his land than any other that his skill could have devised. And orcs, they were useful slaves, but he had them in plenty. If now and again Shelob caught them to stay her appetite, she was welcome. He could spare them. And sometimes, as a man may cast a dainty to his cat, his cat, he calls her, but she owns him not, Sauron would send her prisoners that he had no better uses for. He would have them driven to her hole, and report brought back to him of the play she had made. So they both lived, delighting in their own devices, and feared no assault, nor wrath, nor any end of their wickedness. Never yet had any fly escaped from Shelob's webs, and the greater now was her rage and hunger. Unexpected Sauron POV in the middle of this book. I'd never really noticed this before, or, or given it any great weight of consideration, I suppose, but this is startling. I can't think... I can think of other moments when characters, when Gandalf or Elrond or Galadriel or Saruman speculate about the mental state of, of Sauron and what it is that he wants or how it is that he feels, but I can't remember immediately another time that the narrator does it. There may be one. I, I haven't conducted an exhaustive search. This literally only jumped out at me today as I was reading it, but good Lord, this is so weird. As for Sauron, he knew where she lurked. This also reminds me, because I'm a huge fan of it, of Dickens' A Christmas Carol and the part that we get back at the beginning of the first stave of A Christmas Carol when he's talking about Jacob Marley was dead to begin with, right? That's how we start that story. And then we get that beat, um, Scrooge knew he was dead? Well, of course he did. Like, uh, Scrooge knew he was dead? As for Sauron, he knew where she lurked, right? We're personifying Sauron in a really interesting way here. It pleased him that she should dwell there, hungry but unabated in malice, a more sure watch upon the ancient path into his land than any other that his skill could have devised. Now, we might be using it pleased him in the older, in the, in the more archaic sense there. It was to his purpose. It served him that this was the case. We may not be talking about his emotional state here, but then, I don't know. And orcs, they were useful slaves and he had them in plenty. This is kind of there's a weird dark whimsicality to this. Uh, if now and again she'll have caught them to stay her appetite, she was welcome. He could spare them. And sometimes as a man may cast a dainty to his cat, his cat, he calls her, but she owns him not. Owns him not here being used in its archaic sense too. This can feel very confusing to a modern reader, but she owns him not means that she is not his. She she pays him no fealty. She is, she is not his possession. The cat here does not belong to the man in this sense. So she owns him not is not an expression of, of, of superior ownership in that modern sense. This is more archaic than that. And sometimes as a man may cast a dainty to his cat, Sauron would send her prisoners that he had no better uses for. He would have them driven to her hole again. All of this might be, this is just logistical. Like, Shelob's there. Uh, God, these prisoners, what am I going to do? I'm supposed to feed these prisoners? Send them to Shelob. Right? That might be the, the spirit of this thing. But then, report brought back to him of the play she made. This is personal. This is 
emotionally connected, I suppose. He is at the very least displaying a kind of malicious curiosity here. This I find completely fascinating. As I say, I can't think of, of another moment when we get an insight into Sauron's personality, a, a narrative insight into his personality, right? Again, accounts given to us by other characters who can speculate or who know perfectly well what Sauron is actually like. That's fair game. But the narrator breaking to give us this, this is something else entirely. Yes, good. Okay, we have only two more... Uh, we have only two more slides to go, but I'm already over time, and I think maybe now is a good time to transition out to questions. So let me take a look here at the questions box. I can cancel this slide, and we'll pick up with the last two slides of this chapter next time. Let's take a look at some questions. Um, let me see. Who, which author, asks Emily Rose, saw Gollum caress Frodo's knee? Not Frodo or Sam, so who? Which author of the Red Book put this in, and what were their motives? This is a great question. This is an absolutely great question. Um, how are we aware of this moment if Frodo and Sam, the only people to contribute to the Red Book of Westmarch, who could even potentially have witnessed this event, how are, what are we to make of this moment? Well... The writing of the Red Book of Westmarch is still the writing of a story, and it is possible that... Okay, if I had to, like... I, I'm going to talk a little about in airy terms about it is possible that some later narrator came along and, and contributed this little detail who saw the narrative potential, who kind of crafted the story, even if it's less historically true. Hey, you know who wrote that passage? Frodo. Frodo wrote that passage. I am convinced of it. This is Frodo accounting for the hope of redemption that he saw within Gollum and ultimately later in his life, his own hope of redemption. Not redemption from corruption in the way that Gollum was corrupted, but Frodo is falling under the same influence, not just through the possession of the ring, not just because he is a ring bearer, but because he has been stabbed by the Morgul blade too, right? He is he is under the shadow in exactly the same way as Gollum is, or not to the same extent, but in a similar way to, to Gollum here. And we've seen him try to find that hope for redemption for Gollum, right? We've seen him display pity. We've seen him engaged in this kind of reciprocity. And it's a difficult reciprocity because now the burden of the ring is growing on Frodo and the will to use the ring is growing within Frodo. But I take this to be an addition of Frodo. Is it true? Did it really happen? Maybe, possibly. I mean, it's narratively true. It's true within the frame of the story. So yes, but if we're thinking about the Lord of the Rings as a document, yeah, my, my money is that it uh, that it uh, that it comes from from uh, from Frodo there. And Heather's asking an interesting question as as an addendum to that. Also related to this, how does the author of the Red Book learn of Sam's mistaken interpretation of Gollum's intent and thus convey the significant moment when Gollum could have been redeemed? My reading of that would also be Frodo. Frodo with an awareness of you catastrophe. More on that right at the end of the book. That's really great questions. Thank you guys so much. That's that's awesome. Um, let me see here. When um, uh, oh, interesting. Chris is saying in the chat too. Sam could be looking back. He was remorseful. Huh. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting. That's an interesting interpretation, right? We would have to assume that Frodo wrote. I, I I can't see Sam writing the version of Gollum that we see in that passage. I can't see Sam 
just conjuring this this redeemable golem, this redeemable Smeagol out of, of thin air. I can't see, he doesn't need to write that the way that Frodo needs to write that. I can absolutely see, because for those of you who aren't perhaps aware of the fictional history of the book, the book belonged to Bilbo, was passed to Frodo, and then was ultimately passed to Sam. And Sam's editions are apparently not that frequent. We'll talk more about the, the history of this book when we get into the appendices at the end of The Lord of the Rings. But um, I could see that being an edition by Sam, right? That's an honest edition from Sam. I, I generally believe that Sam is more responsible for those moments that make Sam appear less than heroic than those moments which make Sam appear super heroic. Those moments which, which make Sam appear super heroic, I generally credit to Frodo, but yes. Yeah, good, okay. A question from Nikki. When the Nazgul feel uh, when the Nazgul feel the presence of the ring, such as in this reading, but Frodo does not put the ring on, don't they still know the ring is near? Even if the ring is not physically dawned, shouldn't they know the ring is still nearer than, quote, normal? Well, what is the dormant power of the ring? Okay, let me rephrase that question. Is there a dormant power to the ring? Or is the power of the ring in its wielding, in its wearing, right? After the uh, disaster at the Gladden Fields, after the Battle of the Gladden Fields, when Isildur is, is slain, right? In the, the, the early days of the Third Age, when Isildur is slain by the orc ambush and he leaps into the river Anduin and is basically used as target practice by the orcs and the ring is lost, it lays there for 2,000 years. Couldn't the Nazgul have found it? If they could just sense the ring, couldn't... Couldn't any force that can sense the ring just have found it? Couldn't they have just like geolocated it, gone out with their little uh, metal detectors and their, you know, scuba gear and, and found it at the bottom of the river? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that, that the ring in its dormant state has almost no presence. It has almost no influence. It makes no sound. It isn't visible to the, uh, to the Nazgul or to any other force. I think that is why... That is why, simultaneously, the ring is so dangerous to wear and so keen on being worn. That is why the ring wants to be worn, is because it's when, it, when it is worn, when its power is made manifest, that is when it is visible. That is when it is revealed. The ring in its dormant state seems to be pretty invisible, I think. Ironically, perhaps. Yeah, that's, that's certainly my reading, but we are going to talk, I should say, Next week, we're going to wrap up our discussion of Shelob's Lair. And then, in fact, let me uh, skip ahead here. I do have one more slide to show you, I suppose. We're going to wrap up our uh, discussion of Shelob's Lair, and we're going to talk about Chapter 10 of Book 4, The Choices of Master Samwise. That is going to be uh, an afternoon session next week, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, Thursday, March 8th, 2018. So next week's session, an afternoon session. It's been a while since we've done an afternoon session of there and back again, so I wanted to mix it up a little bit. So we're going to talk about uh, Chapter 10 of Book 4 next Thursday afternoon. And then before we launch into The Return of the King, we're going to take a skip week and we're going to talk, we're generally going to do some Q&A, I think. I'm not sure yet if that is going to be a live session or a pre-recorded session, Probably a pre-recorded session, I think, just to, to vary things up a little bit. So if you guys want to submit questions for that special Two Towers-oriented Q&A session, you can do so over on the forum at pointnorthmedia.forum, or you can get in touch with me directly at uh, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Then I'll compile those questions and we'll, we'll, we'll answer them. We'll have some interesting discussion, I'm sure, about the Two Towers that's going to focus a little bit on the ring. We're going to talk a little bit about the ring and how the ring works at that point too. Let me see. Okay, let's maybe do one more question here. I know you push back against the Tolkien criticism, says Joseph, that the goodies are 100% good and the baddies are 100% bad, but Shelob is just 200% 200 proof evil, right? Here's the thing. That tiny little, that tiny little element of Shelob's description that I called out today might 
actually push back against that idea. Okay, Ungoliant is a creature of unfathomable darkness. Ungoliant is just evil. And Sheila, by all accounts, is just evil too. But that very simple line about no longer being contained by the darkness, if she consumes all the life that there is to consume, then maybe she'll be free? Yeah, there's something potentially tragic, at least in there. But yes, Shelob is among the most perfectly evil creatures that we will get within the bounds of Tolkien. But even, even in those terms, right, that is the disproof of the notion that the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad in the world of Tolkien, which, as you say, Joseph, I have pushed back against more than once uh, during these discussions. I, I think that's a casual reading of Tolkien. I, I don't think that a considered reading of Tolkien yields that kind of, of moralistic opposed polar duality at all. I think the good guys are oftentimes extremely conflicted and the bad guys are oftentimes... Well, some of them, to a greater or lesser extent, are at least convinced that they are doing the right thing or doing the necessary thing or something of that sort, right? Even Sauron wants order, right? Even Sauron wants absolute dominion. This is, he, he's working towards something. It's not evil for evil's sake, even though evil within the, the cosmology, within the morality of the Lord of the Rings does tend to engender evil for evil's sake. That, that tends to be the self-destructive nature of evil there. But by virtue of the fact that Shelob, to a superficial reading at least, is 100% evil, proves kind of, you know, evidence of absence, I suppose, that the other monsters and creatures and enemies contained within the Lord of the Rings are not 100% evil, I suppose. But yeah, I was fascinated by that little account there. I'm, I'm going to be thinking a lot about Shelob, it turns out, and not just in that waking up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, sweating nightmarish kind of way. Uh, Varieg of Khand asks, how is that Minas Morgul Tower revolving with magic? Um, yes, presumably, right, that is the dark sorcery for which the tower is named. I do not think that Minas Ethel revolved. Though, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Um, certainly, certainly that would be my interpretation, right? The, the revolving head of the tower, the revolving top of the tower does not seem to be consistent with, with uh, Numenorean architecture and certainly not with Gondorian architecture. So I would assume that it is magic, but... Yes, or at least that's how it's presenting itself to Frodo. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, that could be the, uh, that could yet be the uh, explanation for that. Um, let me see here. Um, yeah, oh, this is interesting. Uh, Chris Stevens is calling out Melkor was evil for evil's sake. Well, no, Melkor was evil for arrogance's sake. Melkor believed that he was deserving of greater power. Melkor wanted to, to subvert and to, to take the power of Eru Iluvatar unto himself. I don't think that he became evil, right? Became, by the time he becomes Morgoth, he is, is pretty much at that point just evil and scarred and twisted, but he has been driven into that by his own evil. This is what I was getting to when I was talking about evil begetting more evil, evil engendering more evil. Ultimately, yes. Like, Sauron is just evil. Sauron is just a bad guy. But it started from an evil impulse that wasn't, hmm, a wicked and morally dubious impulse that was not just the pursuit of evil in and of itself, right? We start on this road and then we are corrupted into absolute evil. But yeah, yeah. Um, okay. 
I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, you guys. Thank you so much for your other questions. Oh, I did want to uh, to call out Angela's question because Angela asked this so early this evening. Uh, confusing passage about Shelob attacks. It appears to be about Sam, but, quote, and then returning quickly to his long habit of secrecy, he closed his hands about the precious file. Let me find. I have, um, I didn't pull this on the slide, but I do have my bound edition of The Lord of the Rings here. Um, where are we now? Yes, here we go. Okay. Orcs, he muttered. We'll never rush it like this. There's orcs about and worse than orcs. Then returning quickly to his long habit of secrecy, he closed his hand about the precious file which he still bore. Red with his own living blood, his hand shone for a moment, and then he thrust the revealing light deep into a pocket near his breast and drew his elven cloak about him. Now he tried to quicken his pace. His master was gaining on him. Already he was some 20 strides ahead, flitting on like a shadow. Soon he would be lost to sight in that gray world. Angela's a little confused by this for two reasons. One, are we talking about Sam or are we talking about Frodo? Well, we're definitely talking about Sam. Frodo passes the file of light to Sam when he's hacking at the cobwebs with Sting. That's As he is clearing their path, he gives Sam the file. So Sam is bearing the file of light at this point. But the bigger question is, returning quickly to his long habit of secrecy, he closed his hands about the precious file. When has Sam ever had a habit of secrecy, asks Angela. Who is this passage about? Um, does Sam have a habit of secrecy? I mean, kind of, kind of. If we think about Sam's singular loyalty to Frodo, right? I'm thinking about Sam intruding on the Council of Elrond, even when he wasn't invited. I'm thinking about Sam speaking up in the Council of Faramir, even when he wasn't invited to speak and being attendant to Frodo in those moments. It's not a secrecy, perhaps, but it is a devotion and it is a loyalty, right? He has this this, this singular loyalty to Frodo. And of course, we're introduced to Sam in the context of the conspiracy. The reason that Sam is on this journey at all is that he is spying on Frodo for Merry and Pippin. And he manages to keep that secret until they get to Buckland, right? He manages to, to keep that secret for a good long time. So yes, he manages to keep that secret from Gandalf. So yes, I, I think that Sam does perhaps have it in him to be secretive, but yeah, long habit of secrecy, probably overstating it just a little bit. You guys, that is going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure. I know there are questions that I haven't yet been able to answer. You can either send those to me via email for uh, the Q&A session that we'll get to in a couple weeks or bring them up on the forum where we can discuss them all together. We can we can have second breakfast and sit around the fire and blow smoke rings and, and talk about Tolkien for just a little bit. That sounds like a good way of passing a morning, doesn't it? I will be back with you next week. As I said um, in the little pre-show section, if you are listening to this on the eve of its release, the follow up uh, Dear Mr. Potter session, if you're interested at all in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, will take place at 8pm Eastern, 7pm Central on Friday, March the 2nd. That is less than 24 hours from now as of this recording. So uh, if you've been looking for your Dear Mr. Potter fix, the technical dragons have been slain, all seems to be well, my voice is back, my chest is no longer, you know weird and awful and infected with bronchitis as it was for a couple of weeks there I am back we are going to continue talking about Tolkien for a good long time thank you for your company this evening have a great night I will talk to you all again very soon until then fly you fools fly you fools